Um, you know, years ago, when I was fresh out of college, I worked for an engineer. Um, we were out on a construction site, and the job was turning south. The drawings on the paper with the elevations and coordinates didn't match up with real life reality out there on the site. And uh, so the, the survey hadn't been done thoroughly, and it was creating a cascading effect of problems for us. Uh, heated conversation began between the foreman and the inspector over who was at fault exactly. Um, and, and myself, as a junior member, I, I kind of sat back watching it all happen with a little bit of angst, you know, when people are, you know, their faces are turning red and, and voices are raised and you're the new guy on the job, fresh out of school, you wonder what's, what's going to happen? Is this normal? <laughs> and um, then the engineer came. He pulled up in his car, he stepped out, he approached the group, he listened to what was going on, he looked at the plans, he surveyed the site, I helped him hold a tape measure, we measured some things and... He calmly gave instructions about what was going to be done. It was going to be at a loss to him and his firm, it, but it was the only clear and proper solution. He, then he got back into his car and he left, and, and everybody got back to work. And I, I often look back on that moment with, that, with kind of an awe that with any given problem that there's a solution, and that sometimes you just, you just need the, the right guy to step into the picture who has the authority, the wisdom to bring about a resolution. You know, we read this passage. Thank you, Simon, for reading this passage for us this morning. And, um, you know, you, you know as well as I that the man who's going to bring resolution uh, to the problem at the beginning of this passage is our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Well, today's passage is easily broken into two parts. The first part reminds us of who we used to be. And the second part reminds us of our new position in Christ. And in both cases, how, how we got there. Now, he starts off by saying, as for you, he says, as for you, you were dead in your sins and transgressions in which you used to live. And it, it reminds me of that scene. You guys remember Princess Bride together with me. Uh, Vizzini is reminding Inigo uh, of how they met. And he says, when I found you, you were so slobbering drunk, you could barely buy brandy. You guys remember that? It's a great scene. It's a great movie. Every scene is great there. And you know, perhaps you don't see yourself in quite that way, but Paul describes our life before Christ, B.C., even worse. He says, you were dead. Before Christ, you were dead. And certainly this was that same warning that was given to Adam in the Garden of Eden as it pertained to eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. When the Lord said, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. You know, Adam ate and eventually, he died physically. But that day, in that moment, he died spiritually. You know, physical death is that separation of the spirit from the body, while spiritual death is the separation of man's spirit from God. And in that moment, Adam was cut off from the source of life, God. And he knew immediately that something was wrong. His eyes were opened to his situation. But coming back to Paul, he says that we weren't just in need of a little help to make us better, we were truly dead. You know, a person who's physically dead is no longer able to respond. They can't respond to touch, to smell, to sound, to light, to warmth or cold. They, they can't respond, regardless of how much we would want them to, or if we pled with them there, they can't respond. It's impossible. And a person who is spiritually dead is unable to respond 
to the things of God. If you know the Lord, certainly you understand this. If you, you've been that same place as me, you start discussing the things of God with a person who's born again, and it's incredible. It's this great fellowship. You're talking about the Lord. There's a back and forth. And it's, even if you've never met them before and they're a believer, you can have a fellowship and it's just good and it's sweet. But if you try that same thing, if you start discussing the things of God with a person who isn't born again, you get that stare, right? Just that puzzled look of somebody who doesn't understand what you're talking about. Have you guys gotten that before? I've gotten that. You know, the word, the prayer, the fellowship, these things are vital to us who are alive in Christ. But the person outside of Christ is dead to these things. They're, un- they're unresponsive. And their lifestyle is a life that fits the bill. And so Paul says we were dead in our sin, our transgressions and our sin. Now that second word Paul uses is, for sin is hamartia. It's an archery term. It's used to describe the man who pulls back and misses. The arrow misses the mark. Whether he was aiming or not is beside the point in archery. The fact of the matter is you hit the target or you miss. You hit the, you hit the deer or you miss. And there isn't a man or, or a woman here who can say that they're always on the mark in life. For sin is truly ubiquitous in man. As I was studying, I, came, I was reading William Barclay in his commentary. And um, on, on this passage, he says the following so well, I wanted to quote him at length. He says, we commonly have a wrong idea of sin. We would readily agree that the robber, murderer, the razor slasher, that's a great term, razor slasher. I need to use it more often. He's Scottish. I don't know if that's why. The drunkard, the gangster are sinners. But since most of us are respectable citizens, in our heart of hearts, we think that sin has not very much to do with us. We would probably rather resent being called hell-deserving sinners. But hamartia brings us face-to-face with what sin is, the failure to be what we ought to be and could be. Is a man as good a husband as he might be? Does he try to make life easier for his wife? Does he inflict his moods on his family? Is a woman as good a wife as she might be? Does she really take interest in her husband's work and try to understand his problems and worries? Are we as good a parent as we might be? Do we discipline and train our children as we ought? Or do we often shirk the issue? As our children grow older, do we come nearer to them or do they drift away until conversation's difficult and we and they are practically strangers? Are we as good sons and daughters as we might be? Do we ever even try to say thank you for what has been done for us? Do we ever see the hurt look in our parents' eyes and know that we put it there? Are we as good workmen as we could be? Is every working hour filled with our most conscientious work and is every task done as well as we could possibly do it? When we realize what sin is, we come to see that it is not something which theologians have invented. It is something with, which with life is permeated. It is the failure in any sphere of life to be what we ought to be and could be. End quote. And then Paul uses another word. Sin, he uses hamartia, but then he uses transgression. And that word in Greek is preptoma. It's the idea of crossing the line, transgressing, trespassing. There's a boundary. It's not to be crossed. To cross the boundary is to trespass in a place that you don't belong. But there's another idea to this word, and it's to slip off of the beaten path. 
It's, the idea is that there's a path that you're supposed to walk according to the path of the creator, but you went off the path. You stumbled off the path and went off the precipice on, and took a great fall. You know, you, we see that in both of our sins and our transgressions, we missed out on life the way it ought to be. And it wasn't just that we slipped for a moment or two. It's because that there's a deep-seated problem at the heart of man that's always going to be out of line with God. It's been said that a man doesn't steal and become a thief. Rather, a, th- a man is a thief, and so he steals. That a man doesn't just stumble into st- into sin. Rather, sin is an advanced step that he's rehearsed in his heart hundreds of times over before carrying it out. A dog acts like a dog because of his nature. He's a dog. And we sin like sinners because we have that same sin nature. And instead of coming to God to receive a new man, most people are content with being their true self. I just need to be my true self and express who I really am. And they're expressing their true sinfulness. And this is why Paul said that we used to follow the ways of the world in our sins and transgressions in which we were dead. We used to follow the ways of the world. The world here is a system of operation. It's the modus operandi of this place that we live in, the world we live in. Man is separated from God. And in this, we throw up our hands and we say, you know, this is just, you know, the way people are. Boys will be boys. And we just go along with it. It's easier to go along with just the way that things are. People expressing themselves and us going along with it. Like a surging river with every molecule drop of water going in that same coordinated direction, downhill, being pulled by gravity. It's so difficult, exceedingly difficult, to fight against the current. Somebody I know was swimming in the ocean with a friend when they found themselves caught in a rip current. The first was able to make it to shore, though they were completely exhausted and never so thankful to be back on the beach. I try to tell this person, sharks are in the ocean. You know, if the rip current didn't get you, the shark would have got you, but, you know, people don't listen to me. And, um, but the friend who was out, still out there had given up the fight and was drifting along with the current, and luckily for this person, providentially, a strong swimmer saw what was happening, swam out to the person adrift, and brought that person back to shore. You know, currents can be a powerful thing. And this world is like that, like a current pulling with great weight on the man or woman who tries to resist. And it's not just that the world and everybody in it have given in to sin and are driving us in that direction. Paul tells us that there's another force at work. We're told that before Christ, we used to follow, we used to be in under the dominion of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, the sons of disobedience. Here is another sobering thought, that those who practice disobedience to God are in many ways the handiwork of Satan. They're the handiwork of the evil one. And most people don't like talking about spirits or even acknowledging them. It's not scientific, right? But the Bible is very clear that there are demonic forces of evil who oppose God and hate what God loves, chiefly man. The Greek word for demon simply means intelligence. As I was studying, 
the commentators brought out that, you know, in some pagan cultures, it was thought that every square inch of the sky was crawling with um, those sort of heavenly beings or demonic beings. Though we're not told such things in scripture, the phrase, the ruler of the kingdom of the air is nonetheless true. You know, Satan, who himself is a uniquely created being, he's not omnipotent, he's not all-powerful, but he is the head of a host of intelligent beings who've rebelled against their creator and abandoned their created purpose to glorify God. Instead, their mission is to corrupt mankind, working in tandem with man's sin nature and the pressure of the world to ensure men are held captive to Satan's godless agenda. Our sin nature is incredibly devious and easy to manipulate by the evil one. And I want us to think about something together. Well, let's think about the future. You know, when Jesus comes back for the church, that's going to be a blessed day, amen? Amen, we're going to see Jesus, right? So he's going to, when Jesus comes back for the church, he's going to take us to be with him, and then there's going to be that judgment that he pours out on the earth, that seven-year tribulation period. The seals, the trumpets, the thunders, the bulls. And after this period, Satan is bound. He's thrown into the abyss for a thousand years. The end of Revelation talks about this thousand-year period. The resurrected uh, uh, Jesus Christ is going to physically rule and return to the earth, and we, his saints, are going to be resurrected, and we're going to rule and reign with him for a thousand years. And it's going to be incredible. But it says at the end of the thousand years, Satan is released. And he goes around deceiving the entire world and brings them to wage war against the reigning physical Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Of course, it doesn't go well for them. It won't go well for them. But the point I'm making is this, how easy it is to deceive man, right? I mean, it couldn't get any better than the millennial reign here on earth. And after a thousand years of, of such goodness with Christ, Satan's released, men are deceived, and they wage war against him. How easy it is for man's sin nature to be manipulated and so quickly and easily turned from God with just a little encouragement from evil. But, Paul says, as for you, you used to live with them. That was you. When we look at the world, when we read the news, when we watch TV, and we have to endure the godlessness it's easy for us to become proud in our hearts. And we say, I can't believe people would do such things. But Paul says, this was you. That's who you were before Christ. You used to live among them. You used to be them. And we say in our hearts, no, I wasn't really that bad. But when we look at the standard of God, the standard of Jesus Christ, who tells us, if you have lusted after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. That's God's standard. Have we, have we never stolen something that belongs to someone else? Have we ever lied to get what we wanted? Have we taken advantage of manipulated people? No, we're really just like them. We were just like them. And so Paul said, you used to live in that way. You gratified the cravings of the flesh. You followed the desires and the thoughts of the flesh. This is what people do. This is what humans do. And we, we try our best to be presentable. But in the dark, 
the natural self comes out so easily. You and I were actually in truly no different than those worst characters on the silver screen. He says, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Our Lord Jesus says in John chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the vines and the branches together, and I talked about abiding in Christ. But this word remain here is the same word for abide. The wrath of God abides on them. It remains on them. It's like the default setting of man in his sin nature is an object of the wrath of God. And it's at this point that many people reject the word of Christ. They say, well, you know, this is the way that I was made. I was created in this way. Or if they don't believe in God, they say that we evolved in this way. So how can we be blamed for being what we are? That's not very fair. Well, I would say that first and foremost, you were most definitely created by God. You're not the product of the impersonal forces of evolution, but that's sort of beside the point. But secondly, I would say that God has the right to do what he would with his creation. If the batch became corrupted, it is his prerogative as the creator if he wants to toss and begin a new batch. But thirdly, I would say that God doesn't leave man in that state of a corrupt sin nature. Instead, God of his own free will has entered into the picture and provided a legitimate means of overcoming the sin nature that's completely within the grasp of every man, woman, or child, and thus leaves man in the state of admission that we're the only ones really to blame if the wrath of God remains on us. And it's spoken here that we hear those two beautiful words, two of the most powerful words that can ever be spoken, The NIV splits it up. I like how the ESV puts it together. And those two words are, but God. But God. Those are two incredible words. Those are two such powerful words. And isn't it true in your life? Do you remember the time when you were born again, if you believe in Jesus? Do you remember who you were before you came to hear the life-giving words of Christ? Do you remember coming to realize the meaninglessness of life and all of its problems and all all of its sorrows, what was the point until you met Christ? You were by nature an object of God's wrath and you were certainly terrified or worried about the prospect of death and its unknowable future. But God, but God saved you. God came to you. He sent the good news of his son, Jesus Christ. He entered your life and gave a hope for eternal things, for eternal life, through the promise secured on the cross of Calvary. In addition to that, there's the ever-present realization that I'm, that I'm living in a but-God reality right now. The other day, I was uh, complaining to my wife about um, a company I was dealing with that they just weren't coming through, and I had called the company multiple times to get the answer I was looking for. I had talked to the manager, It was like, there's nothing, no solution. And uh, certainly you've been there too. And it was just frustrating. And my wife uh, had this brilliant idea. She said, you know what? We need to pray about this. (laughs) I should know these things, right? 
but I'm just like you. I, I want to tackle things. I often don't turn to the Lord until I've exhausted all the options that would make me look good, that I could brag about myself, how I figured it out. So we prayed that night, right before bed. The next morning, I checked my emails. I had gotten an email at 6.30 from the company that morning that resolved everything. And I was like, I should have just prayed. I, but we couldn't stop smiling because it was that miraculous answer to prayer. We were just blown away and we experienced those two words, but God, but God. So there is for you and me in our everyday walk the need for the Lord to intervene on our behalf and the reality that he does. But there's also the more, that fundamental truth that God has provided the solution for man's problem with sin. And that solution is God himself. God is the savior. And we're told of his motivation for this great salvation that we have. And it says that God saves man because of his great love for us. Not because there's anything lovely in us or about us, but solely due to the nature of God does he so willingly choose to love sinful man. The love of God is part of his nature. It's always who he is. It's inseparable from his being. The love of God is what we call one of his absolute attributes. It's always true, even outside of the creation. His, his love, he's always love. He was loving before the creation, and he's loving in the creation because of, that's who he is. Love seeks the well-being of another without any prospect of personal gain. And the Lord showed this in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, each expressing a genuine, self-sacrificing love towards the other and a beauty of perfection. And it's how the Lord extends this love to us, his creation, that we discover the varying textures of his love, his relative attributes in relation to man and creation. Namely, his mercy and his grace towards us. See, the Father never had to show mercy to the Son, nor did the Spirit have to be gracious towards the Father. For these attributes are expressions of God's love towards sinful man. Mercy being the, the expression of God's love and how he withholds the wrath of God from us. And grace being the expression of God's love and how he shows favor and goodness and blessing to an undeserving man. Mercy, not giving man what he deserves, wrath. Grace, giving man what he doesn't deserve, blessing. And here I'm reminded of one of my favorite hymns, The Love of God by Frederick Lehman. It goes like this. It says, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and it reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. O oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forevermore endure the saints and angels' song. When hoary time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men here who refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, a redeeming grace to Adam's race the saints and angels' song. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made, where every stock on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade, 
to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. It was a beautiful hymn about God's love, his grace, his mercy towards us. You know, growing up, we didn't have a lot of money. We weren't like dirt poor. Um, but I had some friends who had a lot of money. And isn't it nice to have some rich friends every once in a while, right? They invite you to hang out and they've got a pool. Or they're like, hey, we got a lake house. You want to go boating? And you're like, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm free that weekend. And when I grew up, you know, we didn't go out to eat often. It was rare. And I, and I never got soda at a restaurant, right? Though I admit I did steal my mom's Diet Pepsi every once in a while, which I need forgiveness for. But when you grow up without excess, isn't it shocking when you go out with somebody and you hear those words, order whatever you want, right? And you're kind of like, really? Can, can I, I can really get whatever I want? Like, do I deserve this? Did I do something good? And you feel kind of guilty or maybe are they telling the truth to me? Did they really, does anybody really have enough money to buy soda at a restaurant? And why would they spend it on me, right? But here we're told that God is rich. He's rich too. It's an obvious fact. He's the creator. He's the creator of everything. And he's given us this world, right? But as it concerns the thing that we really are deficient of, we're told that God is rich in mercy. He's rich. He has so much mercy. There are storehouses full of mercy, truckloads and truckloads. In a cutthroat world of greedy and merciless men, God has plenty of mercy for you. Enough mercy for any and everything you would need his mercy for. So when you look in the wallet of your heart and out flies a moth, the evidence that your debt for sin has left you bankrupt, the Lord says, I am rich in mercy. You can have whatever mercy you want. And when we object, he tells us that my son has already settled the debt with his blood. He died to share my mercy with you if you would just try it. Receive his mercy. Receive his mercy today. He's rich. He's so forgiving in Christ. He wants you to enjoy the freedom of his mercy. If there's something in your life, something in your past, you're too afraid to bring to God because of the shame and fear that he may withhold his mercy, then you don't know the goodness of God in Jesus Christ. No, Christ came to save sinners. He came to save the worst sinners, of whom I'm the worst. I'm chief. He came to save you from the worst moment of your worst day and all those following. It was for this very reason that Christ came into the world, to save you, to extend to you the mercy of God you might know the kindness of God in Christ. But we're told that that's not the only way that he's rich. The passage goes on to say that he's exceedingly rich in grace. If God's mercy toward your sin seemed excessive, then Paul's telling us that his grace tops the cake. He doesn't just buy, buy the meal with the soda and the fries. He's buying dessert afterwards too. He doesn't just take away sin. He yearns to shower blessing on us. He's poured out the spirit of God into us that we might not be alone. In this grace, we receive his kindness. We receive his strength. We receive his wisdom. We receive his word. We receive the gift of fellowship and prayer 
to which he answers according to his promise. God's grace towards us is a manifold wonder. And the grace of heaven to come, the unimaginable bliss of paradise with Christ, a grace so precious, a taste so rich, our earthly minds and hearts and taste buds are unable to comprehend. We cannot compute its likeness. And he's saving that for us in the future. Everything that we need in this life and the life to come, God has provided for us, for he is rich, exceedingly rich in grace. An interesting note about this passage is that God is the subject and man is the object. And um, I just said that, and some of you are like, Drew, I left the ways of grammar school in elementary school behind me, and I don't want to live those again. But uh, just put on your schoolhouse rock for a moment. It's going to be brief. But the subject is the one who carries out the verb, whereas the object is the one being acted upon. Okay? So, you know, in the sentence, you know, Drew hits a chicken. Drew is the subject, and the chicken is the object, and the result is Chick-fil-A tomorrow <laughs> when they open, okay? All right, so we got a subject and an object, and here it is God who does the work, and we are recipients by faith. God made us alive in Christ when we were once dead in our trespass and sins. God makes things that are dead alive. God specializes in resurrection. The first fruit raising Jesus from the dead bodily out of the grave, followed shortly by his ascension to heaven, where he's seated at the right hand of God. God loves resurrection. His second work is raising up out of spiritual death to life in Christ. And here we're spiritually born again through faith in the work of Christ on the cross. And it's here that we're also seated in a spiritual sense in the heavenlies with Christ until we actually are there physically one day. God's final work to come is when he gives us our physical, eternal resurrection bodies to match the new creation of the inner man, which he's already begun. By grace, we are saved. God does the saving. God makes us alive. God does the saving. Salvation is not the story of man pulling himself up by the bootstraps or getting things together. Salvation is a work of God. And man is the recipient of his salvation, totally and completely. We were dead. We were unable to respond to God. But God made us alive in Christ. He did the work, and he saved us in the process. God is the subject. He does the work. We're the object, receiving the benefits of his hard work. You know, at Calvary, we're a church. We're in that Protestant tradition of Christianity, the Protestants meant to reform the church that they thought had become polluted with rituals of man doing things to please God and earn his favor. A growing group of Christians wanted to come back to the essentials of the faith, taking away all the unnecessary junk and accoutrements that weighed down the message of the gospel and polluted it. And they celebrated this through remembering five core things concerning life and salvation. They're called the five solas. Sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, sola scriptura, um, and soli deo gloria. And because nobody here speaks Latin, then we'll talk about it in English. But it's 
That a man is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, as taught in the scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. Amen? Amen. So Paul continues this idea of grace and faith being the work of God, where God is the subject, man is the object, but he does it in, I would say, an even more objectifying way, if you don't mind the trigger word there. In the end of the passage, Paul uses the word workmanship, for you are God's workmanship, which in the Greek is poimea. And the word is often used to describe the work of an artist, like a skilled craftsman or a painter. When you're in Christ, this is truly what you are. You are the result of God's work. Everything good in you was accomplished by and through Christ. Everything bad about you that has changed and been, has been cleansed by the redeeming work of Christ in your life, of God in your life. Your life is like a piece of art that God is displaying for the world to see. As Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And that light is Christ in you, the hope of glory. But not only this, God wants to display that masterwork of your life as an art piece for ages to come. That's interesting. He says ages to come. We're currently in the same age that Paul was writing, the church age. The next age is the millennial reign of Christ, where you're, you're going to receive your resurrection body for a thousand years. But then it's followed by that eternal age, the eternal state, where we live with Christ forever. Our life for all eternity is going to share the masterful work of God's glory, of his mercy, his grace, his kindness, his love for ages to come for people to marvel at. So don't resent the days of difficulty because you are God's handiwork. You're God's workmanship. You're God's piece of art created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. So as we looked at this passage, you know, as for you, you were all these things, but God. I think that we shouldn't be surprised that the world is as evil as shown on TV. But as the passage says, we used to be that way, the way that we lived in our hearts and in our minds, at least. But God saved us. And if he saved us, the worst of all people, he can save them. Amen. He wants to save them. He, he can save anybody. So be open to God using you to show the rich mercy and grace that God showed you. To show that to somebody else. That grace and that mercy that was motivated by love towards somebody who God may be waking up to Christ. And trust that God is truly orchestrating your life as the master craftsman and artist that he is. But like any job worthwhile, any job worth doing right, it just takes time. And that's what God's doing in your life. So let's read this passage together one time, one more time here. 
Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just worship you and praise you and we glorify you today. We thank you, God, for your, your grace and your mercy, which you are so rich in, God, that you would share that with us. Who are we? We don't deserve it. We, don't, we haven't earned it. There's nothing lovely really about us, but God, you saved us. Thank you, Lord, that you love us that's who you are, that you are, that's the God who that we, we serve is, is a God of such great love. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you might continue to transform us by that love, that you would help us to realize how great that mercy and grace is so that, Lord, you might use us in your efforts to save a world that is dark and lost and dying and outside of Christ. Because, Lord, if you saved us, you can save them too, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that you would help us in our prayers. I pray that you would help us to endure the hardships that we're going through, Lord, so that in the end, you might gain ultimate glory, maximum glory in our lives. Lord, we thank you and praise you for all of your goodness, for our time together in fellowship. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.